Many marginalized populations in Canada, such as the homeless or those addicted to illegal substances, have a much higher prevalence of disease. Reaching these populations to address these severe health inequities is challenging and requires particular methods on the part of health researchers. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Dr. Anne Jolly, Associate Professor in the School of Epidemiology, Public Health and Preventative Medicine at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Jolly has co-authored an analysis paper on the topic of health research involving hard-to-reach populations. Hello, Anne. Hello, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for joining us. There are some populations and groups who, for various reasons, get missed in health research. And yet these marginalized groups are often those that face severe health challenges compared to the rest of the population and in which good research is really needed. And give us some examples of the populations that we're talking about here. We started off actually looking at people with sexually transmitted infections in Manitoba and whether these people are really poor or whether they're quite wealthy. It's a sensitive topic and nobody really wants to discuss it, especially not when it's them or their sex partners. Um, So it's usually populations in which there's some sort of heavy social taboo or some sort of social sensitivity. It's more overt. So, for example, uh, injection drug users, as you may expect, because they're marginalized, people do judge them. And also, of course, the activity that they're doing is illegal. We see also the sort of same same kind of hidden population or marginalized people uh, for, for sex workers. A lot of street people, um, people who are addicted to alcohol and with other issues, mental health issues on the street. Um, and recently we started working with uh, some very marginalized folks in Cali, Colombia, who are African, Colombian and are transsexual. So these are the kind of people who are very vulnerable to infectious disease. But uh, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's really difficult to do good research in these groups. Why is research involving these groups so particularly challenging? Well, for one thing, many of them have had very negative experiences with healthcare systems and even with healthcare professionals. So they tend to stay away from hospitals, from mainstream medical clinics. People don't want to be judged. And also they tend to receive a lot less sort of sympathetic care. So there's a lot less understanding about how the uh, mental illness or the drug addiction or the street life impacts on their health. So generally, it's because of sort of society's judgment against them. So these people often have difficulty engaging with health researchers. And what happens if we don't make an effort as researchers to reach marginalized populations? Well, one of the major things, and I think that is really becoming quite clear, is, for example, people with tuberculosis living in the inner city. Many of them may be uh, on the street drug addicted. They may not be eating properly. They don't have a stable lifestyle where they know they have a home to go to. And all of this kind of moving around stress, as well as the crowded conditions in some of the shelters, the harsh temperatures we have here, everything, it makes these people really susceptible to transmitting and and getting sick with tuberculosis. The infection tends to wear on them much worse. So 
everything is sort of much faster, much more severe. Uh, the social issues in follow-up and care and treatment much more complicated. There are issues of, yes, infectious disease can be transmitted everywhere. So things like the flu also can be very harsh with uh, these folks in the shelters and various other places they live. And uh, it, it does actually have an impact on the rest of society in terms of the burden of illness, the cost of the illness, and direct transmission to people who are less at risk. In your analysis article, you suggest a particular approach for conducting research in marginalized populations. Could you take us through the method and explain how this works? This is a new method and, and it was sort of pioneered along the social network lines. An earlier version of this was snowball sampling, where you basically try to find people who are well known within the marginalized group or the vulnerable group of people and ask them to bring their friends. But as you can imagine, you know, you may be sort of quite overwhelmed with the number of friends that they have or the number of friends that their friends have. Respondent-driven sampling was developed by, well, the, the idea first came to Doug Hackathon out of the United States in regards to injection drug users and the HIV issue. So HIV being spread from um, used contaminated needles or other drug equipment. So he actually refined this technique of snowball sampling whereby he asked people to come in to bring their friends but restricted the number of friends to bring in. They themselves, the friends that is, would undergo the interview and then in turn if they consented they would uh, recruit more friends who would then come in as well. So you're looking at generations of friends of friends of friends that come in. Um, and of course when I'm saying friends, you can actually be a little more directed and say, can you bring your support friends or the pet friends that try to help you get off drugs or the friends that try to help you inject safely. You can ask them to bring in other drug using buddies. You can actually direct the question. And the premise of this uh, sampling is actually very old and it rests upon the work of Stanley Milgram from 1960s who did work showing that although humans have very wide and broad networks and other people may not be familiar with your own network, they actually have a pretty good idea of how to find other people and find their way around. So by asking questions like, who else do you know who may be at risk? Or can you give this to a friend who, who you think is most likely to know this other person or has connections on the Eastern seaboard? People actually don't know those people, but they can usually find a person in their network who is actually pretty knowledgeable. And there we have, of course, the famous saying, the six degrees of separation. So how does this uh, interesting method provide us with additional insight into the health status of marginalized populations? The people who are most sort of expert at their own networks are the actual community involved. And a lot of this method depends on very good relationships between the community and the researchers. So as you may expect with these populations and in our other work, we've been moving more and more towards community-based research. And to me, this is the ultimate involvement in the community is where the community actually gets to be the experts on their own health care and their own health needs and their own risks. And they're able to actually recruit each other and so that is the, the beginning part of all of this. The people that you initially recruit are leaders. And then what happens is those people recruit their friends. And so what happens over after several generations of recruitment is we feel we're getting more and more into the population most at risk. 
So in other words, those people who are most difficult to find, least likely to come in for traditional care, least likely to engage with, you know, the institutions of our society like social services and hospitals, these are the people we feel that we're able to reach the best with this method. That sounds really valuable to be able to allow these marginalized groups to help each other to achieve better health outcomes. Yeah, and I think one of the fundamental reasons it works so well is because there's very much of a respect relationship happening here. We don't pretend to know everything and we are actually letting the process guide itself, let the community guide the recruitment process itself. And needless to say, the large amount of lead up work in which we can find people who are most likely to know other people and most likely to be trusted by other people. This is a a really important part of this research. Of course, once you've collected the data and you've gone through these chains of recruitment and these chains of people at risk, you know, it's possible to use these chains also to spread prevention messages and other interventions. So I think that by strengthening the community and strengthening the relationships between yourself and the community as a researcher, it's whatever comes out, whether it's knowledge or prevention, it's all good. Thanks for talking with us today, Anne. You're so welcome, Kirsten. I've been speaking with Dr. Anne Jolly, Associate Professor in the School of Epidemiology, Public Health and Preventative Medicine at University of Ottawa. To read the analysis article she co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.